0: Turn your Bibles to Luke 24, and this morning we'll be looking at verses 36 through 49. And I knew the wind would kick up as soon as I stood up this morning. Before we read from Luke 24, uh, just a story behind the song. We sang just a few moments ago, now thank we all our God. It was penned by Paul. Reinhardt, who lived in the 1600s, he lived in Eilenburg, Germany, and like the rest of Europe during that time, it was stricken with the Black Plague. 8,000 people died that year from the plague. Reinhardt buried 4,480. That was the background of the song. Now, thank we all our God. It was a testimony of a faith in a God who relentlessly loves and pursues his people, even in the midst of a broken, fallen world. A reminder that Jesus, as we'll read in this text, promises a peace that the world cannot give and a joy that the world cannot understand. As we celebrate Thanksgiving this year under the cloud of COVID, remember that story and go back and reread this afternoon the words of Now Thank We All Our God. Luke chapter 24, we come towards the end of the Gospel of Luke, beginning in verse 36. Let's stand for the reading of God's Word. As they, that is the disciples, were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled and why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that is, I myself? Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and he ate it before them. And then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And then he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures. And he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer, and that the Christ on the third day will rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for these ancient words, not simply penned by the hands of men, but through the inspiration the superintendence of your Holy Spirit. And so open our hearts as we gather before you and continue to transform us by these truths, the honor and the glory and praise of our great God and King and our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. You know, there's so much to admire about the African-American culture. I have learned so much from many of my African-American friends just about life in general. And I've shared with you before how I so enjoy so much about African-American worship. I don't know if you've noticed, if you've ever had a part to, to take part in African-American worship, but unlike white worship, it's interactive Sometimes when you're preaching, it's difficult to know whether white folks are following you, especially now with masks and distance. But you don't have that problem typically in an African-American worship service. You know whether or not they're following you or not by their responses. I don't remember which pastor it was, but he talked about a lady in his church that she sat on the front row. And as he would begin to preach, she would urge him on, Yes, Lord. Yes. Amen. Hallelujah. But he said when he began to struggle or stray, this same woman sitting on the front row would start saying things like, Help him, Lord. Help him. The phrase often used by African-American pastors is, Can I get a witness? They want to know as they're preaching whether or not the people are following along. Whether they're understanding how he's, he's doing. He wants feedback and in an interactive worship service he gets it often that question can i get a witness is followed by loud shouts of of amen well luke is all about can i get a witness he began his gospel way back in chapter one with the importance and necessity of witnesses of eyewitnesses he began his letter chapter one inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those from the beginning were eyewitnesses of these things. And he went on and he told his friend Theophilus that he carefully investigated these reliable witnesses. And just as Luke began his gospel account with the need for reliable witnesses to confirm the historicity and validity of the Christian faith, So he concludes with eyewitnesses. The women coming back from the empty tomb. Peter, who later followed up with his witness about the empty tomb. But now in this passage, Luke calls his star witness to the stand. Not the angels, not the women, not Peter. But Jesus himself. You see, the Christian faith is founded upon the witness of the resurrected Christ. No longer is it the angel's testimony, the women at the tomb, or Peter's proclamation. Jesus now is standing in their midst, and they're terrified. They think that they've seen a spirit or a ghost, possibly because John tells us they were in a room that was locked for fear of the Jews. We don't know if Jesus' resurrected body could pass straight through matter, but it sure sounds like a supernatural setting. And in the midst of this setting, he appears to them and wants to confirm that he indeed is physically raised from the dead and is alive. See my hands. See the nail prints. See my feet. He asked for leftovers and they gave him some broiled fish and he ate it in front of them. A spirit, a ghost, a hologram can't do that. It's Jesus' physical resurrected body. He wants to demonstrate his resurrection to these disciples. But that demonstration, that evidence doesn't end there. In volume 2 of Luke's work, the book of Acts, he's writing his same friend Theophilus, and he says this in the opening, Jesus appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve, He appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive. In other words, you can go talk with them now. Some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and then to all the apostles. And lastly, Paul says, he appeared to me. Jesus wants to dispel their doubts and their fears by standing in their midst, demonstrating the physical resurrection of the Son of God. But notice what else he does. He doesn't just say, see my hands and my feet. He speaks words of comfort to them. Peace to you. That same word that he used to calm the raging storm. The same word he promised to his disciples. Peace I give you. A peace that the world can't understand. A peace that the world can't begin to comprehend. Peace I give you. So don't be terrified. Don't be afraid. The same word Paul used later. To describe our relationship with God as we place our faith and trust in Christ. Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have what? Peace with God. The same word Paul used to the Philippians. To calm our anxious hearts. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything. By prayer and petition, make your requests known to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. When our hearts are gripped with fear and terror and anxiety and worry, we're called upon to cast all of our anxieties upon Him because He cares for us. No wonder Isaiah said, you will keep in perfect peace Him whose mind is steadfast Because he trusts in you. In our anxious world. In our worry ridden world. This promise is still for God's children today. Have you heard the voice of Christ? Peace to you. Continue to trust. And to rest. And to rely upon our risen prince of peace. The Lord Jesus Christ. And that peace of God will Continue to guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. But there's something else in addition to this piece. He speaks of a joy as well. When their eyes beheld the resurrected Christ. There's an interesting phrase that Luke uses in verse 41. He says, they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling. What is this disbelieving joy? They have just seen and heard something that is just too good to be true but it is that the disciples are experiencing a joy beyond belief you know we haven't seen with our own physical eyes the resurrected christ as did the disciples nevertheless jesus later said something to doubting thomas that applies directly to us gathered here this morning listen to what jesus said to thomas Have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen me and yet still believe. Peter, who was there, picked up on this in his first letter to the churches. And he said, though you've not seen him, you love him. And though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with a joy inexpressible, Full of glory. Here's that disbelieving joy. It's too good to be true. A a joy that's inexpressible. A joy unspeakable. I've shared with you before the testimony of the hymnist Ann Steele. Who wrote many hymns rooted in joy. Yet in the midst of great trials in life. Her biographer Ann Steele wrote the book entitled. To express the ineffable. The hymns and spirituality of Anne Steele. Ineffable isn't a word we often use. It's not a word we text our friends back and forth. But it is a word that simply means something that is too great to be expressed or described in words. It's a disbelieving joy. This is just too good to be true. There are not words that can capture the joy expressed in what I've just seen and experienced through the work of Christ. That's what the disciples are experiencing as Jesus displayed his nail pierced hands and feet. He was saying, See? Do you, do you see? And they began to experience this joy. Oh, do you know that peace? Do you know the joy that flows from the cross, that flows from the empty tomb, that flows from our resurrected, reigning, ruling Lord and Savior Jesus Christ? He still says, see? See from his head, his hands, his feet? Sorrow and love flow mingled down. Did e'er such love and sorrow meet, or thorns compose so rich a crown? Do you see him? Have you heard his words of peace, his promise of joy? The Christian faith is rooted in the witness of our great resurrected Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. But second, Jesus brings us to the point of recognizing that the Christian faith is also rooted in the witness of his word and spirit. In verses 44 through 47, Jesus now reminds, reminds these disciples what he told the two travelers to, on the road to Emmaus. He said to them, Luke records for us, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in the scriptures the things concerning himself. Verse 27. And now Jesus declares the same thing in verse 44. He declares, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything about me, written about me, Jesus said, and the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Back in verse 27 that we saw last week when it says he interpreted the scriptures, it's the Greek word we derive the word hermeneutics from. Hermeneutics is a fancy word for the science or study of interpretation. The principles of how to interpret the scriptures. And Jesus is giving the disciples, as he did those two on the road to Emmaus, the key principle of interpreting the Old Testament. And this is it Jesus said, It is all about me, it's concerning himself. The law, the Psalms, and the prophets was Hebrew shorthand for all the Old Testament. And there's some difficult passages in the Old Testament. But Jesus says, if you want the key to unlock the Old Testament, ask the question, where am I? Where is the Christ in this text? And now what does the Old Testament teach us about Christ? Verse 46 tells us, the Old Testament teaches us the Christ must Suffer. The law, the Psalms, and the prophets teach the suffering Savior. The law itself required a substitute, a sacrifice, which pointed to the sufferings of Christ. The Psalms remind us of a suffering servant and the suffering Savior. Psalm 22, we've read it many times these past years, with pinpoint accuracy, described the crucifixion as if it was written on that day, but it was written a thousand years before. And who can read the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 53? But but seeing and hearing the suffering servant on the cross, the law, the Psalms, and the prophets spoke of the suffering of our Savior. But Jesus went on to say not only the suffering of the Savior, but his resurrection. The Old Testament teaches the resurrection on the third day. Think of Jonah's resurrection, if you will. From the belly of the large fish. One who came to Nineveh with the triumphal message of salvation. He came out of the, on the third day. Think of Hosea's prophecy of the great work of redemption in these words. After two days he will revive us. On the third day he will raise us up that we may live before him. You can help think of not just the law and the prophets, but the Psalm. Psalm 16. God promises that he will not let his Holy One see decay, but will raise him up. No wonder, looking at the Old Testament Scriptures, Paul said to the Corinthians, For I delivered to you that of first importance, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. That he was buried and raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. The law, the Psalms, the prophets all spoke of the suffering and the resurrection of Christ. That means all the new covenant promises find their fulfillment in him. That's why Paul can say to the Corinthians, And all the promises of God are yes, And amen to those who are trusting in Christ. It's a reminder indeed that all of redemptive history finds its fulfillment in the person and work of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So when you're reading the Old Testament, don't read it quickly just to get to the new. Stop and ask the question, Where do you see Christ in these holy pages? Where do you see him in the law? Do you, do you see him in the sacrifices, in the ceremonies, in the tabernacle? Do you see him in the prophets? Do you see him in the Psalms? Do you see him in the moral law? Not only one who perfectly kept that law for us, but we see in that mirror our own miserable failure and our desperate need for the Redeemer who came on our behalf? Do you see him in the failures of the supposed heroes of the Bible and the kings of the nation who miserably failed, subsequently pointing us to the only true hero of history and the only legitimate King of kings and Lord of lords, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will never let us down? Jesus said, All the law. The Psalms and the prophets spoke of me. They point to me. They find their fulfillment in me, our Savior said. But still, don't you wish you could have been there? To seeing the nail-pierced hands and feet, to watch him eat that fish, demonstrating he was physically present with them. Wouldn't you have loved to have been there? You know, Peter, who was there, later wrote, Of his eyewitness account to the majesty of Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. He wrote of being an eyewitness to the resurrection of Jesus. But Peter penned in his second letter these words. In chapter 1 verse 19. We have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. More fully confirmed than what? Than having been there. We have not only eyewitness account, we have God's own interpretation of what it meant to have been there. Of the significance of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. We have so much more than the saints of old had as they walked on the earth, even with Jesus. Because Peter went on to say, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes about by the prophet's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of men. But holy men were carried along. They were inspired by. They were superintended by the Holy Spirit of God. So that now what you have in your hands is something more profound and more certain than having been there. You have the complete, finished, final word of God that points us to Christ. That's what's been more fully confirmed in our hearts and souls through the ministry and testimony of the Holy Spirit. And so as Luke is drawing to conclusion the ministry of Christ on earth, he wants Theophilus and other readers to understand that the Christian faith is rooted and grounded in the witness of Jesus' own resurrection. It's rooted and grounded in the witness of the Word and Spirit. And then Jesus leads his disciples to this final point. And that is that this Christian faith is to be proclaimed to the nations, to the world, through the witness of Christ's church. You see that in verses 47 through 49. This witness to the world is Luke's version of the Great Commission. It's Luke's understanding Of what Jesus left as his parting words to his church. The gospel of Jesus Christ proclaims this. There is forgiveness of sins. There is mercy of God and the grace of God. To be found in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Through repentance and faith in him. And that message is to be proclaimed in his name. What does Jesus say? To All the nations, beginning in Jerusalem. And then verse 48, he says to his church, you are what? Witnesses of these things. This global cause, this world focus, this kingdom emphasis was all in the Old Testament as well. Did you notice when Jesus was drawing his disciples' attention to all that the law and the Psalms and the prophets spoke of? He says that it not only spoke of his suffering, not only of his resurrection, but of his commission. This idea that the gospel is for the world is not new. It didn't show up in Matthew 28 or Luke 24. The law, the Psalms, and the prophets remind us of this global cause of the gospel throughout. Think back to the law, the very first book of the Bible in Genesis. It was mentioned earlier in Genesis 12, the covenant with Abraham. God said, I will bless you and bless those who bless you. That in you, all the families of the earth would be blessed. Psalm 2067, our call to worship this morning, declares the saving power of God among the nations. The prophet Isaiah spoke of the global mission of Christ as he said, I will make you a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. Do you understand the law, the Psalms, and the prophets spoke of the sacrifice, the suffering of our Savior, of His resurrection, and of His commission? The marching orders of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that which began on God's heart way back in Genesis, we do find its fulfillment in Revelation. One day, all the redeemed through all the ages, from all the nations will gather together around the throne of God in endless uninterrupted worship of the Lamb of God. And there we read in Revelation, after this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation and tribe and language and peoples standing before the throne and before the Lamb. Do you understand what that means for us? The Lord Jesus Christ has placed upon his church a call to the nations and placed in our hands a sign that simply reads the world or bust. That's who we are as the redeemed people of God. But here's the question. The world's a big place. I struggle with with different languages I, I kind of know one I remember talking to Richard Pratt who is the head of third male ministries and Richard said you know what do you call somebody who, who knows three languages well they're trilingual how about somebody who knows two languages they're bilingual what do you call someone who only knows one language American <laughs> how do we reach a world with one language when there are hundreds of languages It's not our strength. It's not our ingenuity. It's the promise Jesus referred to in verse 49. He tells the disciples, I want you to wait. They had to wait about another week and a half. He reminded them of the Father's promise. The promised Holy Spirit. In volume 2 of Luke's two volumes, he Reminds us of what Jesus told those disciples gathered there that day in Acts 1.8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. What enabled these fretful saints who in fear were hiding behind locked doors for fear of the Jews? What enabled them in just a matter of weeks to boldly proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ before hostile crowds and to take this good news to the known ends of the world of their day. It was not their own strength, not their own ingenuity, not their own plans. It was the power and ministry of the Holy Spirit that set them ablaze with the hearts for the gospel and the glories of Christ to be named throughout the entire world world and this same power which filled the church at Pentecost still today fills prayerful churches who are dependent upon not their own strength and ingenuity or bank accounts or whatever it might be but who in desperation depend upon the power of the Holy Spirit of God and so let's pray for spirit-empowered compassion for the lost. Let's pray and plead from heaven for spirit-empowered courage to speak often and well of Christ among those with whom we live, work, and play, among our loved ones and friends and co-workers and classmates, motivated by an unspeakable joy of the gospel and a longing for the glory of the Lord to fill the earth. May the Holy Spirit who empowered the church in the first century empower us as his people in Clemson and beyond. This is the heart of God. It's the heart of the scriptures from Genesis to Revelation that one day there would be people from all nations gathered together in endless uninterrupted worship of the Lamb of God who alone Who alone is worthy of our hearts, our lives, and our worship. You know, one of the things that has encouraged me in world missions and just evangelism in general is not just reading through the pages of Scripture in which this is a recurring theme, but in reading good biographies of those that God has used to see others come to faith in Christ. Biographies such as men and women like John Patton. And Adam Arm Judson, Gladys Elward, Amy Carmichael, Hudson Taylor, C.T. Studd, who I like to say was a stud, Jim Elliott, William Carey. In the 1700s, newly ordained William Carey stood to argue the importance of the church's mission to the world among a group of pastors. And he was abruptly interrupted by an older pastor who said, Young man, sit down. You're an enthusiast. When God pleases to convert the heathen, he'll do it without consulting you or me. Well, Thankfully, William Carey listened to the voice of Christ rather than the complaints of that pastor. And he went on to take the gospel to nations. He recruited literally thousands of others in the 18th century to leave the comforts of their home and to take the gospel to nations who had never heard of the glories of Christ or the good news of the gospel of Jesus. William Carey later became known as the father of modern missions. You know, not all of us will become William Carey's. Nevertheless, the indwelling Holy Spirit will cause each and every one of us who is in Christ to ask this question. What part am I to play in your kingdom emphasis? What part, O God, do you want me to play in this global focus and global cause? For many of us, that will involve remaining here, being faithful in our callings, living out the gospel in our relationships at work, at home, at play, verbalizing, sharing the good news of Christ with our lips, demonstrating it in our lives. It will also involve us praying regularly and fervently for those whom God has called to leave our land and to go elsewhere, to support them significantly, sacrificially for the cause of Christ. But it may also involve some gathered here who will go elsewhere, who will go beyond our own Jerusalem to the Judeas and Samarias of our culture, and even to the ends of the earth. Wherever God's calling will take us, my prayer is that the Holy Spirit will emblazon upon our hearts the cry of Isaiah in chapter 26 and verse 8. Yes, Lord, walking in your ways, and the ways of your law, we wait for you. Your name and your renown are the desire, the passion of my heart. May God the Holy Spirit emblazon that longing upon your heart and my heart for the glories of our risen King. Let's pray together. Father, running throughout the pages of Scripture... It's a call and a longing since the fall to see your glory fill the earth as the waters cover the sea. To come to that day of fruition in which the nations will be glad in the glories of Christ and the good news of the gospel. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you have demonstrated to us clearly the glories of your grace the certainties of your resurrection, both in your own witness and the witness of your word. And now you have called us to bear witness of that same glory and grace of our risen King before a watching world. So, would you emblazon upon our hearts that same desire, that same passion that runs throughout Holy Scripture? Yes, Lord, walking in the way of your laws, we wait for you. Your name and your renown are the desire. And the passion of our hearts. We pray in Jesus name. Amen.